It has been a, a, a great week for us, for my family, and we have so enjoyed being with you and so enjoyed uh, meeting so many here and getting together with you in your homes and having meals together and, and good conversation together. I appreciate the uh, spirit with which you uh, conduct yourselves and uh, the warmth that we receive from you. And I, I hope so uh, dearly that things will continue to go well for you and that the, the work here will go well and that you'll be able to be a, a strong beacon and a light in this place. Um, you know, you go all over the place and you see churches of all different sizes and shapes and, and backgrounds and, and you see lots of different levels of care and concern about what we're doing, about what we're supposed to be doing. And I just want to say that you have a lot of people here who care about doing the right thing. And I know that. And that is not everywhere. And don't take that for granted. And lean on each other. And I hope that you continue to grow in those things. I hope these lessons have been helpful to you. Um, that they uh, are, are ones that are impactful. They're impactful to me. I don't preach lessons that just aim outward. I preach lessons because they, they hit me. And, uh, and these are things that I need to be reminded of. Uh, I, I said last night that the hospitality we've enjoyed has been rich. And uh, I, I so am thankful for that. I'm thankful to Mark and Carrie giving us the loan of their house this week. That's been a, a great favor to us, and we appreciate that. And, uh, and I, I appreciate the work Stephen's doing here. And I pray that you will lift his hands up and that he will uh, continue to grow in his efforts with, along with you as you labor in the kingdom in this place. I think tonight is the most important of all the lessons that we've talked about this week as far as building relationships. Because it is the, at the very foundation of what those relationships uh, are made of. Um, we're talking about the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is uh, from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We talk a lot about love, and if there's, if there's any word that has lost its meaning for overuse and abuse more than love, I don't know what it is. Uh, it just gets thrown around and, and used in so many different ways when people talk about relationships that are nothing more than perversity, nothing more than lust and infatuation, and they call that love. Well, that's disappointing. And, uh, and so we have to be careful that we don't allow our definition to shift as the world's definition of love shifts. So not only that, but then when you, when you try to bring any, any sort of uh, wisdom or discipline into somebody's life out of love, well, that's hatred. And so not only do they twist the definition of love, but they've robbed love of so many of its important aspects until you just end up with a, a meaningless word. I do recognize that, that the word love has a range of meaning, and even in the Bible, it has a range of meaning. When it talks about uh, people who behaved based on the love of men, 
or uh, the, the, the love and regard of things. That word is the agape word. I think sometimes we think that word gets reserved for only some special kind of love. It's, it's the same word. So it's not like the Greeks only reserved that for some special intense form of love. No, they meant you could do that to a candy bar. You know, you could have that kind of love for whatever. So it has that range of meaning for them as well as us. So I'm not saying that we need to go on some kind of crusade to tell the world to stop. They wouldn't listen anyway. To tell, tell the world to stop using love in that way. But what we've got to do is make sure that we maintain a recognition of what God means when He says, I'm love. What is His definition? What's His standard? What's His example? And that's what we want to look at tonight. We've hinted at this a little earlier in the week as we talked about husbands and wives. And, and so we'll come back to some of those themes this evening as we look to that, that sense of what love is. I want to just start by some, uh, some thoughts about how important it is to go to the source and kind of set our definitions of love to the side and come to God saying, you define it for me. Let me see what you have to say about this. There's a sense in which there's, there's some natural instinct within us uh, that, that we can lean on to understand love to some degree. In Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, In everything, therefore, treat the people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, that, that idea of treat other people the way you want to be treated is playing on a sense of fairness that everybody seems to have. C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in Mere Christianity as well as some of his other apologetic works. And basically what he says is, even people who don't have a problem with stealing have a problem if you steal from them, right? Personally, they understand what it means to love this person. And so they don't think there's anything wrong with stealing from anybody else, but you go steal from them, they'll say, hey, that's not fair. What do you mean by that? They got something in there, if they'll just admit it, that has a sensibility about what it means to respect other people, to love other people. And so Jesus is playing on that. He says, you, you recognize some basic treatment, some basic fairness in this world. And that is A, it's not the, but it is a foundation for which we can treat other people. And it's a good place to start at the very least. Uh, Paul would talk about people who had lost some natural sense of affection. Over in Romans chapter 30, or chapter 1 rather, in verse 31, Romans 1 and verse 31, among those um, digressions that the Gentiles had made, he lists those out. He comes to verse 31 and he says, they're without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And so some of your translations will say they're without natural affection. So something that is inherent, that seems just basic, these people have lost. Over in 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy rather, chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and there in verse 3, again, very similar language there um, with regards to uh, the work of an overseer. He says, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Um, excuse me, that's 1 Timothy. First, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. Speaking of uh, men who will, he says in verse 2, be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. In verse 3, uh, unloving. 
irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good. So what is that, what does that um, you know, inherent love look like? Well, I think, I think we, we feel the, the tug of a heart when we see someone in distress. We feel a compassion. Nobody has to tell you to feel sorry for somebody who's down on their luck. Uh, nobody has to tell you to feel badly for someone who's suffering next to you, who's lost a loved one, who's going through some sort of illness or other sort of uh, difficulty. Nobody has to tell a mother that she should love her baby, except that we're at a place in our culture where we do, don't we? We have to say, hey, you need to love that thing that's growing inside of you. Or even when the baby comes out and the mother is more concerned about her own conveniences than that child, you need to love that child. So what we're having to do is we're having to go back and give instruction where natural affection has been. Our society, like the one that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, has even pushed out natural affection till we've denied that. But even if we have intact that natural affection, there is still something that needs to be taught. There's, there's a, there are aspects of love that need to be learned. Over in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4, it says that the older women, among the things that they ought to do, they ought to encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. You ought to think that that's something that shouldn't need to be taught, and it certainly shouldn't need to be taught to Christians. Well, I think there's something natural. There's something that doesn't have to be taught, usually. But even in the best of circumstances, there are things that need to be learned. Right? Because doing what comes natural ultimately is what God's Word says is not going to get you there. Uh, in any endeavor, right? It, your heart is not going to lead you in the right direction. That's why we come to God. We don't have the answers. We don't know what the best thing to do is. And so God gives us some baselines, but He says, but here's some instruction in addition to that. And that's what we're talking about moving towards tonight. I'm not talking about the, the things that are so obvious, the things that are just right there till no one should hardly have to even say anything. I'm talking about this, this kind of instruction. Over in Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives instructions that they ought to grow in love and, and look at what he couples with that. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So how do you accomplish that? That's the sort of thing you, you certainly hear a lot of preachers say, a lot of religious people, maybe even irreligious people, that they hope love will abound more and more. But notice what he says. I hope that happens in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So when he presses them and says, I want your love to increase. How do we go about that? Knowledge and discernment. You don't know how to love somebody. You don't have to read. You don't have to understand what God says and who God is. And without that, you can't grow in love. And so a lot of people say, they'll say really silly things like, we need to do less, we need to be less concerned about what this says and more concerned about the one who wrote it. Well, the only way I know to find out about the one who wrote it is to read it. Right? That you can't separate those two things. And so it is with love. You can't just work on emotion without some guidance, without some understanding on the direction for that sort of emotion. So grow in, in love 
how? Knowledge and discernment. And so what we come to is we, we, we come to understand that when it says over in 1 John chapter 4, as we read earlier, God is love, that He defines it for us. And you say, I'm not sure how to show love. Well, look to God. He's the ultimate answer there. And can I just suggest, if He's doing it, that's the pattern for love. God does everything out of love. Can I suggest to you even judgment is out of love? A lot of people think, well, there's no, there's no love in judgment. Well, let me ask you, if, if you had a judge in the area who let everyone off, would you say, he's a loving judge? You wouldn't if you were the victim. You would say, where's his care for me? Or where's his care for my daughter who was abused? Or my loved one who's been murdered? He cares about the perpetrators, but not the victims. And I don't want to live in a world, I don't want to live in a place where we have those kinds of judges. And I don't want to live under a God who is careless about the injustices that are done. And so it is love for truth and love and regard for people who want to do what's right that God brings judgment into the world. And even still, even still towards the perpetrators, He has no desire for them to be destroyed. But His his love means that something must be done. That they must be punished. And we must be punished. And His love goes all the way to the point as which we'll see that He will turn that judgment even towards Himself as God becomes man and takes the punishment for us if we would but let Him. So we look to God and we say, He is the truest form of love. And He is where we're going to learn about it. So let's just note a few things. I don't know that we'll get every characteristic that can be imagined about God's love. There's so many so many things, so many thoughts we could discuss. But with just a few thoughts, I think, that jump out as we look at various discussions of God's love through the New Testament particularly. So to begin with, what are some characteristics of God's love? He loves first. I think that's a very important concept if we want to learn how to love. It says in John 4 and verse 19, uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, we love because He first loved us. Now, what do we take from that? Well, obviously, you know, we are responding to God's love, but just contemplate that for a minute. You will never be able to love God in a way that what He is doing is responding to you. Uh, Everything we do is a response to Him. He always gets to claim first. There are times in a relationship, a marriage relationship, parent-child relationship, where one or the other wants to do something for the other unbidden, right, without being asked. Have you ever ever had your mom come and say, would you do this? And you thought, I wanted to do that without being asked. Yeah, I wanted to be first, right? You'll never get to do that with God. You'll never do anything He hadn't asked you to do. I've even talked to teenagers sometimes who are not, have not obeyed the gospel, have heard it all their lives and have not obeyed the gospel. And I think one, one thing that becomes a sticking point to some people, they say, I, I want it to be my idea. It'll never be your idea. It'll always be God's idea. Now, I know what teenagers mean sometimes. They mean, I don't want it to be my parents' idea. I get that. That's fine. But it will always be a response. You say, we don't get to be first. 
in our relationship to God. We just got to accept that. He's going to be first. But I tell you what else I take away from that is that I need to be willing to be first in my relationships. So sometimes people will say uh, in a bad marriage, they'll say, um, it's, it's always me who starts. I'm always the one who, who comes and makes up. I wait on him to apologize and he won't. I have to make the first move. Every single time, I have to make the first move. And I think, yeah, so does God. So if you did have to make the, if, if that was literally true, which almost it never is, but if it were literally true that you made the first move every single time, what would you have done more than God has done? You wouldn't. And so even if that's the case, what do you do the next time? You make the first move again. And you keep being willing to love first and not wait on. And so many times I, uh, you come into a situation where there's conflict and the first words are, well, I will if, if he will. You make the first move. And if they respond to that or, or if they don't respond to that, that's fine. But you make sure you're there first. You're the one showing the kindness. That's the nature of love for our enemies, as Jesus instructs in Matthew 5 and verse 46. That we come and, and we see people who are abusive to us. We see people who would mock us. And what does Jesus counsel? He says, love. That's what you do. It's what Paul counsels in Romans chapter 7. You show them love. Well, they don't ever show anything for me. Okay. God knows what that's like. He knows, he knows exactly. That's, that's his whole existence is showing love for people who show him disregard. He loves first. Secondly, he loves no matter what. And this is a, a striking thing to come to a realization of. That his love is without fail. I think sometimes we want to be told why people love us. I know we do. We want to be told all the wonderful things about ourselves that make people appreciate us. And so we want a card from our spouse that says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then we'd like them to count them. <laughs> Go and list them. And with God, I just don't know. I don't know how long the list would be. I don't know if it would even have anything on it. He doesn't love me because I'm a really great guy. He loves me in spite of the fact that I'm a wretch. He loves me even though I have wounded him. I have spurned him in so many ways. And yet, and yet he loves me. I think when we look at John chapter 13 and the washing of the disciples' feet, it says there, um, it says before the feast, in verse 1 of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that right there is a statement in and of itself. These, these men who gave such calls for frustration. He loved them to the end. But note what it says beginning in verse 4 when we look at this uh, washing of the feet. He got up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. 
And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered to him and said, uh, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Got a lot of imagery going along there, and there's, there's a lot to think about. But just consider Peter's objection and responses to Jesus. In the first place, he says, you don't wash my feet. Now, why does Peter not want Jesus to wash his feet? Well, Peter thinks he doesn't deserve to have Jesus wash his feet. And he's right. He doesn't deserve to have Jesus wash his feet. And so Jesus' response is, well, you better let me. Uh, you're going to have to let me if you want any part of me. So then Peter says, well, then wash all of me. So what he wants is a ceremony now. I don't want you just bending down and washing my feet, but if what you're doing is some sort of ceremony, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all on board with that. And Jesus says, no, Peter, this is not a ceremony. It's just your feet are dirty. I'm just washing your feet. A lot of people make a big deal out of this. They say, you know, we need to be washing people's feet today. Well, if they're dirty, we do. <laughs> but this is a circumstance. Somebody needs something done, and Jesus says, I'm going to bend down, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to show you God himself will serve you this way. And you're going to have to accept God. You're going to have to accept the fact that he's going to get down and do for you, humble himself before us in a way that we do not deserve. And that is a humbling thing in and of itself. Because what we want, we want to deserve what's given to us. When, uh, when I go searching for cards for my children, all the cards in the rack have some reason associated with I love you, my daughter, because you are so brave. I love you because you're so pretty. And because you're so smart. And because you've accomplished such wonderful things. Now, I think all those things about my daughter. But some days they're not very brave. And some days they're not very smart. And some days they don't accomplish much at all. And what I need them to know is I love them those days too. I don't need them walking around thinking that the only time they get my love is when they reach the heights of deserving love. And I tell you what, I need bigger love than that too. I don't want my wife to love me on the days that I'm at my best, only then. Because there's just not many of those days. I need her to love me on the days that I'm at my worst. And that's a humbling thing. Because when we say, tell me why you love me, on the one hand, we want, we want them to list out all of these things, but what I need to hear is when none of those things are there, I love you still. That's what we have with our children. You say, when, when they come into the world, why do you love your children? Because they're beautiful. Well, they are most of the time. Sometimes they're not. Why do you love them? They don't do anything for you. They cry a lot. They keep you up at night. 
They're frustrating. Why do you love them? Because they're yours. You're mine. And I love you no matter what's going on. And that's the way it is with husbands and wives. And it's the way it ought to be with God's people. And it's the way God is with us. And we might cry out to God, why do you love us? Because you're mine. It's not because you're great. It's because you're mine. Because He's great. And so that's what we can depend on. It's humbling, but it's also confidence building. Because we know, we know God loves us not because of our accomplishments. And that is, that is a great relief because we find ourselves to be great failures and we need His love all the same. Another thing that God does is He loves through empathy. And this is an extraordinary thing. We spoke about this a little bit. On Monday night, when we looked at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Jesus goes as far as it is possible for him to go to put himself in our shoes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who can one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a marvelous thing that Jesus looks down on miserable failures and says, I'm going to come down there with you. And He does it all right. And everything just like it should be done, He truly is the obedient servant. And then He says, but I did that so I could show you that I know what you're going through. Now we might say, well, you don't know what we're going through because you hadn't been the failure. But instead of letting that bring him to haughtiness, it brings him to compassion. And so it should be with us. Only we have greater reason to be compassionate because we're not perfect. If Jesus, being perfect, could look at us and say, I sympathize with your weaknesses. And who are we to look over at other people with weaknesses and go, I just can't sympathize with that. I mean, he's got a lot more effort to put in that than I do. There's some times when we get frustrated at each other and what we need to think about is, can you imagine being in their shoes? And I I hear sometimes myself and, and other people say, no, I cannot imagine being in their shoes. I've never been that foolish we had a conversation like this at our house one time where I asked one of the girls, I said, what's the problem? And she said, she's being ridiculous. I said, well, can you imagine yourself being ridiculous? And she said, well, not that ridiculous. I said, well, can you imagine being a little bit ridiculous? She said, yes, I can imagine being a little bit ridiculous. I said, well, just imagine being a little bit ridiculous and how do you want to be treated? She's like, well, not like I'm treating her. All right. Well, at least you can expand your mind a little bit. And so that's what you want to do. You want to look over there and say, well, I've never acted like that. Well, Jesus can truly say he's never acted like any one of us. And yet he looks at our weaknesses. And what does he do? He's compassionate. That's it's something to marvel at. And it's something we got to work on because we have too little patience and we have no right to be short on patience when we have this high priest who is so long on his patience. 
Another thing that we see from God is that He loves in every aspect, in every facet. He loves with heart, with words, with deeds. We are wont sometimes to say something like, love is a verb. It's not a feeling. It's something that you do. Love is a decision. It's it's not words. It's actions. I think... I understand what all that means. I mean, I understand we, we want to appreciate that that you can't just say you love somebody. It's not just something you feel inside, but you've actually got to make decisions. You've got to do hard things. It's not what comes naturally all the time. But I think if we go too far, we end up acting like, like you don't even have to feel any, anything. You just have duty. That's not love. Right? And in, in 1 Corinthians 13 exposes that that's not love. We talked about this a little bit the other night. When he says, um, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I tell you, somebody, I was talking with a young man about this passage one time, and he said, uh, he said you know, what Paul's talking about is people who are fakers. I, I don't think somebody giving their body to be burned is a faker. That's somebody that's pretty serious about what he's doing. I don't think somebody that gives all of his possessions to feed the poor is a faker. I think he means it. But there can be something missing. You can go that far and still have something missing. What would it be? Your heart's not in it. Or at least not the way it should be. You're not looking at the people that you're giving those possessions to the right way. You're not, you're not devoting yourself to God with the heart that goes along with it that makes it mean something to God. Over in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, Little children, let us love not with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, uh, right there, he's saying, he said, let's, let's, not, let's not just let it be speaking, but let's it, it actually be done. Let's, let's put deeds along with that. But do you suppose what he means is don't tell people you love them? No, he's saying don't only do that. And so it's, it's not okay to just say, well, I'm going to do it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to show that person that I love them. I'm going to take that passage from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to heap some coals of fire on their head. No, no, no. You got it all wrong. You're actually supposed to develop some affection. You're actually supposed to figure out how to like those people. And you combine the, the words and the deeds and even the emotion and the heart that goes along with that. And what you have is, uh, is something real and something genuine. That you genuinely do care about people. Sometimes that's something we got to work on. It's something we got to develop. In, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, it says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It, it doesn't say he saw them and he rolled his eyes but he knew what his duty was. No, he really did feel for him. I mean, he really did love him. 
And so there's a genuine care there. Now, how do we, how do we get there if we don't have it? Because we might say, this is how you ought to feel. And somebody says, yeah, well, I, I don't. I mean, people are the worst. That's how I feel about it. So how do you maneuver? How do you shift your heart like that? Well, I think one thing you do is you recognize, you recognize where your affections do lie. And you work on shifting the importance. You, you understand what they look like to God. That's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to see people like God sees them. Jesus does that for us like in Luke 15. So he gives these three parables. And, and so he's got a parable of a lost sheep. And then he's got a parable of a lost coin. And then he's got a parable of a, a lost child. And what he's doing is, is talking to people who would care a lot about their sheep. And he says, you know how you, do you know what that feels like? That's the way God feels about people, lost people. They'd care a lot about some lost money. He said, you know how you feel about that? That's the way God cares about lost people. And you ought to too. And then finally, he brings up this lost brother and he says, do you see how that daddy cares about his son? And do you see how that older brother feels about him? This is what God feels. and This is what you feel. And you need to make the shift. You need to look at that lost person the way a daddy would look at his lost son. And then you'll see a little bit of what God sees. And so we've got to try to put ourselves in that position and try to think with those thoughts. And, and, and God gives us, uh, he gives us an, a narrative, a story to be able to put ourselves into that place and to try to see them that way. Sometimes when my, my girls are frustrated with each other, and they'll say things about each other. One of the things I'll ask them is I'll say, would you, would you like it if somebody else talked about your sister that way? And I go, no, 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 I wouldn't like that. Well, why not? Well, you sh people shouldn't talk about our family like that. I said, that's right, people shouldn't. Like not even the people in the family. And so sometimes we just got to shift our perspective. We got to just step to the side just a minute and say, what's going on here? Is that the way I want to feel about these people? No, it's not the way I want to feel about them. I hope we want to make that shift. And so we try to, to look at people differently than we have. Shift our hearts, our words, and our deeds. I will say this. Sometimes you may have to start with the deeds. right? So a man comes and says, I just don't love my wife anymore. Well, then you need to get busy loving your wife again. I mean, you, you just got to get back to it because you've made a commitment and you've promised that you would. And so it's not just something that you can just let go of and say that it isn't there anymore. Sometimes you've got to put it there. And, uh, and so that is true. But we're trying to develop more than just gritting our teeth and doing our, our duty. In Hebrews chapter 12, another thing that we see about the character of God's love is that he takes the long view. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 and you have, he says, forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he dis disciplines for our good so that we may share in his holiness. What good is he disciplining us for? The long haul. The long-term good. And so we have to spend a lot of time looking to eternity when we're thinking about loving people. Sometimes we just need to look to next week when we're trying to show people some love. Because we think, if I say that, he's going to get so mad at me. Okay. But if I don't say it, then he's on his way to hell. And which is worse, having him mad at me a little while or that? Parents who won't discipline their children, who won't take the long view with regards to their children, and I mean that in more ways than one. You won't take the uh, long view from the standpoint of disciplining them now, or you won't take the long view in recognizing that it's a lengthy process. Some parents, they want it right now. And they don't re recognize that it's a very long-term, patient thing bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My mom, I sometimes wonder if she thinks she's done yet. <laughs> and it's... it's it's just a lot of work bringing up children. And so we do all sorts of things that hurt in the moment. I can remember when we would take our children early on to the doctor and they take blood or they're given shots or whatever and, and you're holding and that person who has the, the worst job in the world, which is coming in and poking babies with needles, that's what they do and make babies cry all day. I would hate that job. So you're holding this baby. But what's worse than that is my baby is looking at me and this pain is being caused. And there's this, they don't understand anything except you're holding them and they're hurting. And why, why did you let that happen? Well, it's for your benefit. That's why I let that happen. Why on earth would you ever let someone take a knife and cut your child open? I mean, if you just put it in those kind of terms, that seems like a ridiculous thing. Except you say, it'll be worth it. Right? They'll be in pain. They'll hurt for days, maybe weeks. But if they needed some surgery, what are you going to do? You're going to tell somebody to take a knife and cut your child open and do some surgery on them. And so we do some surgery. And it hurts. And sometimes it hurts for a little while. And sometimes you may go through seasons where your child is, doesn't say, I love you. And if anything comes, it's disdain and they hate you. I'm never going to speak to you again until they need some money. Or they say, you know, I hate you. And you have to look at that and say, I know she doesn't mean that in the long term. And I know she's going to regret those words. And I'm going to stay here and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to stay the course because... I want more than just to hear sweet things coming from your mouth right now. I want you to get to heaven. And so I'm going to put up with that. And that's God. God has heard so many people say, I hate you in so many different ways. And what does he do? He just keeps pressing on and keeps reaching out to us and doing it in ways that wake us up, that hurt, but all so that he can have us near him and before him for all eternity. 
I think the last characteristic that I think of when it comes to God's love is the most difficult. And that is, it's a characteristic that takes, that allows for a response. It's an, it's an offer, and it's not forced. God doesn't say, you're going to love me whether you like it or not. He says, I want you to love me, but it'll always be up to you. I think one of the truths that gets neglected very often in the story of the prodigal son there in Luke 15 is the fact that the father, who represents the father, when his son comes and says, I'm going, and the father knows what's about to happen. He knows that this is foolish. And he sits back and he lets it happen. Why didn't he lock the doors? Why didn't he shut the gates and say, no, you're not allowed to leave my house? Because then that's useless, isn't it? And so with regards to love, what God does is offer it. If there is anybody in the world, out of the world, that could actually make somebody do what they wanted to do, it's God. And He won't. He leaves the door open. And we frustrate ourselves so much. And we ruin relationships because we go after people and we think somehow we can force them into doing the right thing. And you cannot. And if, if God set the pattern of not, then we ought to recognize it. When Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he, he says that in verse 37, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And what, he says, what does he say? But you would not. Well, do something about it, Jesus. You can't. You can't make people do what they don't want to do. Can I say it's just such a hard truth to learn? I know you. some of you have had studies over the years at the addiction clinic. It's one of the hardest things for family members of an addict to learn. You cannot help people who don't want to be helped. God shows us that God Almighty recognizes that truth. And, and, and part of His love is leaving room for us to make our own choices, even if they're terrible, terrible choices. And so you got to leave that door open, and you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to say, I wish I could just shake some sense into them. And I know, and God knows, don't you think, that He wishes He could shake sense into people. But if they will not, they will not. What do we do? Well, like the father in the story, we wait and we hope and we leave our arms open and we are ready and we are waiting. And we make, continue to make efforts and we reach out like, like God illustrates in Hosea, continuing to try to persuade, continuing to appeal, but always, always leaving that person with the choice as to whether they will come or whether they will not. I don't know how God stands that. God has had a thousands of years of disappointing relationships with man from the time he created him up till now. I get, I, I, have, I have become so cynical in some areas in 40 years of really mild disappointment. 
I don't know how God has managed for 6,000, 10,000 years of radical disappointment and maintained his love. So I really have no excuses for my cynicism because I look to him and I think he's just endeared so much more and he loves us still. Well, what about you? The world's full of people who will tell you God loves you. But can I say God loves you not because of how wonderful you are. He loves you because of how wonderful He is. And that is a far better thing. And He stands giving you the truth about yourself. James chapter 2 talks about looking into that perfect law of liberty like a mirror. And so you look into that mirror and God holds it up and He says, this is what you really look like. It's awful. And it's shocking when we come face to face with the realities of our sin. So here's what you look like. You say, now what? God says, I still love you. Right? I, I don't show you that in order for you to show you that I, I can't have you. I show you that to say, now that you recognize that, now you can come to me. And so would you accept this truth? And then would you accept his love? And lay aside every other love that might keep you from Him. I hope that you would this evening. I hope that you marvel at His love. And allow Him to show it to you. Though you do not deserve it. And to make you something special. Something like Him. If there's any way that we can help you with that this evening, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?